Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, Grace and Truth, a study of the book 1 Corinthians. Here's Pastor Nick. Please open again in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. That's where we're studying this morning. We're picking up today in a series that we started last year and did all the way up until around Christmas time. Then we took a break. And so today we're picking up in that series called Grace and Truth, which is our series studying through the book of 1 Corinthians, going through it chapter by chapter and verse by verse. So today we're picking up where we left off last time in verse or chapter 14, verse 26. So please bow your heads with me and let's pray as we open open God's word. Lord, thank you for your love and grace towards us. And one of the ways, Lord, you manifest your love and grace towards us is by speaking to us through your word and by your spirit. So Lord, this morning, give us ears to hear and hearts to receive all that you have for us in this passage. Help us to understand it clearly and help us to respond appropriately. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I was living and pastoring in Hungary, uh, one time I took a trip back to the United States to visit friends and family uh, for a couple weeks, and then I returned to Hungary, and when I returned, one of my friends from church came up, and he greeted me and welcomed me back. You know, he said, welcome back, and then he took a step back, as people do, and he looked at me, like up and down, and he said, you know, there's something different about you, but I can't figure out what it is, and then after a minute, he said, oh, I know what it is. You're fat. And I said, oh, okay. And he's like, no, 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 really. You gained a lot of weight. You really just packed it on. Like, that's what's different about you. That's what it is, right? Now, how many of you have ever received feedback that you didn't really ask for, and it wasn't exactly helpful or encouraging? It reminds me of a person I met uh, one time, and they were like, we were talking, and then they said, hey, wait a second aren't you on the radio? And I said, I am on the radio. And they said, oh, yeah. Wow, I listen to you all the time. Your sermons are, eh, they're okay. And I said, <laughs> I said, well, I wasn't actually asking for feedback on my sermons, but thanks, I guess. What is that? I like the response I heard from one pastor. Uh, someone came up to him after service, as people tend to do. This person said, you know, I didn't really like worship today. I didn't enjoy those songs that you sang. And the pastor replied, he said, you know what? That's okay, because we weren't actually singing them to you. I don't know if you realize that. Like, um, we, we were singing them to God and worshiping him, and we were actually trying to please him with those songs, not you, so that's okay that you didn't like him. Uh, you know, for many of us, this highlights the fact that from time to time, we need a reorientation when it comes to the way that we think about worship and the way that we think about church. And here's why. We live in a consumer-driven society, don't we? It's a consumer-driven society. Now, that can be a really great thing when it comes to economics and the free market, but it can be a really bad thing when it comes to relationships and particularly how we relate to God. Now, here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we have a text which helps us reorient the way we think about worship and the way we think about church. Rather than just being spiritual consumers 
who are only obsessed with what we receive or what we get out of this or what we get out of that or what other people need to do for us. Instead, what the Bible tells us is that the church is a body. And in a body, every member matters and every member has a role to play and a contribution to make to the whole. And as we reorient ourselves around this biblical view of worship and the church, here's what you'll find. As you begin to focus on serving others rather than yourself, it will reorient your heart more and more towards Jesus. So the title of today's message is Reorienting Worship. And what we're going to see in this passage is that rather than just being another consumerist activity, the essence of true worship is surrender to God, which orients our hearts to be like Jesus and build up others in love. Now, every week I give you a summary sentence, kind of a takeaway truth that I'd love for you to write down. Maybe if it's too long, take a photo of it, whatever you got to do to get it in your notes and into your brain so that this week as we leave here, you have this thought going through your mind about this passage we studied today. So here's what it is, and then we're going to use that as our outline. So let's look at that whole sentence one more time. Rather than just being another consumerist activity, the essence of true worship is surrender to God, which reorients our hearts to be like Jesus and build up others in love. All right, let's take that sentence and break it down, use it as our outline for studying this passage. So the first part, rather than being just another consumerist activity. You know, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26, it says this, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. The Corinthian Christians had a tendency to be self-focused and self-interested. Throughout this letter, we've seen how in many areas of their lives, they were concerned with doing what made themselves feel good without any thought or concern about how their actions might affect other people. But what Paul's been helping them and us to understand is that as followers of Jesus, we have a higher calling than just living for ourselves. Through Jesus, we have a new orientation towards God, which in turn gives us a new orientation towards the world and towards other people. Rather than just living for ourselves, now we live for him who gave his life for us, for Jesus, right? And following Jesus and living for Jesus means taking on his mission and becoming ambassadors of God's love and grace in the world and to people in the world. Jesus, rather than just living for himself, he surrendered his life to the will of the Father, and he laid down his life for us. Jesus taught us that it's more blessed to give than to receive, and he came to us in the form of a servant, and he taught us that true greatness is not found in being served, but in pouring your life out for the sake of others. That's what it means to follow Jesus, is to walk in those footsteps, to take on that ethos, to take on that mission. And you got to see that those ideas are so incredibly countercultural, aren't they? And they're not just countercultural, they actually run contrary to our very human nature. But even though this tendency to be self-focused and self-absorbed, even though it's nothing new, even though it's inherent to our human nature, the fact is that you and I currently, right now, 
where we live. We live in the most individualistic, self-centered, consumeristic society that has ever existed up until now in the history of the world. And here's the irony. Even though we live in this culture which places such an emphasis and so much encouragement on seeking your own pleasure, right? Treat yourself. Do whatever's good for you. Put yourself first above all, above all other things. The irony is that this endeavor to put ourselves first and seek our own pleasure above all else, it hasn't actually made us happier. You know that in Western society, Western society where consumerism and individualism are most prevalent, do you realize that in Western society, we have the highest rates of depression and anxiety and loneliness than anywhere else in the world? In other words, our culture has fed us this lie that the key to being happy is to prioritize yourself, focus on yourself. Rather than just leading to greater happiness, though, this focus on ourselves has actually led to just the opposite. And that really shouldn't come as too much of a surprise to us because Jesus himself told us that this would be so. Jesus told us this. He said, if you try to hold on to your life and live for yourself, you will lose it. It will slip between your fingers like sand. But if you give your life for a greater purpose, for the higher calling of Jesus and the gospel, that is where you will find true, lasting, fulfilling life. Now, many of the Christians in Corinth just like many people today, they had a consumeristic mentality when it came to how they viewed and how they related to church and to worship. Specifically in Corinth, many people saw church gatherings as an opportunity for self-expression, right? To do whatever felt good to them without any concern for how it might affect other people. So they saw church services as an opportunity for self-expression that would make themselves feel good. And as a result, it was chaotic. What we read in these verses described for us is something like this, right? Like people were just talking over the top of each other, interrupting one another. People would hijack the service and dominate the conversation. There was a spirit of rivalry and competition amongst the people. They were all trying to show that they were smarter than each other or more spiritual than the other. It was chaotic, and it wasn't really helping anybody to grow. Not to mention, Paul says earlier here in chapter 14, he says, if an outsider were to walk into one of your services, they would think that you were all crazy, like they would run away from you because you're acting like this. He says, so in other words, not only are your gatherings not helping anybody to grow in Christ, they're also not helping any outsiders to come to Christ. And at the root of all of this was selfishness. It was an attitude that says, I'm coming here to get what I can get out of this, right? I'm coming here to have my needs met rather than an attitude that says, I'm coming here as part of a body to contribute and serve and help others. In other words, they had turned worship, they had turned church into just another consumerist activity. And of course, we would be amiss to think that we don't have that same tendency within ourselves. Right? We, we have the same tendency in ourselves, of course, except here's the thing. Our consumerism tends to take on a slightly different form than theirs did. Right? Their consumerism was, was all about self-expression, whereas our consumerism tends to be more about passive consumption, just like we do with so many other forms of media. Right? This is just one more form of media that we passively consume. So what we read here in verse 26, when you come together, 
Each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. For the Corinthians and for us, the message is the same. When you come to worship, don't be focused on yourself, but come with a heart to build and serve others. Now you see, the Corinthians, they were good at the first part, right? Like Paul isn't actually telling them you should bring a song, a lesson, etc. He's saying to them, you're already doing this, right? This is what you do. Uh, you're already bringing those things. So they were good at that. When they gathered, they all came prepared with something to share. But what they, what they weren't good at, right, was thinking about other people. They were doing it in a very self-indulgent way. Like, I'm going to show everybody how smart I am, or I'm going to show everybody how good I can sing, or how spiritual I am, and they'll all be impressed with me. They weren't seeking to serve. They were seeking to show off. And Paul says, no, man, that's so... So cringy, so carnal. Like, take your focus off yourself and focus instead on how you can serve and help others to grow. Now, for us, though, it tends to be not that, that tends to not be the area where we excel and the area where we struggle. We tend to be on the opposite end of the spectrum. But it's still a form of consumerism, right? Because in our more passive form of consumerism, um, we do really well what Paul says down in verse 40. So just glance down to the end of the chapter and notice in verse 40, Paul tells the Corinthians that instead of their chaotic gatherings, instead they should do all things decently and in order. Now we tend to be really good at that, right? Doing things decently and in order. But where we struggle in our particular form of consumerism is in the idea that every person is called to come to church prepared to contribute and to give and to share and to build up others. In other words, we need to ask the question, what is the church? The church is not an audience that passively receives. The church is a body. And worship is not a passive activity that we observe. As a body, we are called to be actively engaged in worship. It's something that we're actively engaged in. Now, a few weeks ago, in our vision series, we studied Ephesians chapter 4, where it tells us God's vision for the church. And it says there that the purpose of the church is this, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So what is the church? The church is a classroom where we come to study. It's the gym where we train and prepare. It's the home base where we gather up together to receive our directives and be equipped to carry out the callings God has placed on our lives. But check this out. The goal of it all, of everything we do, is this, to build up the body of Christ. And when that happens, when the body of Christ is functioning properly, it says this in Ephesians 4.16. Here's what happens. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So when the body is healthy, each part is playing its unique role, and the body is building itself up in love. Now, how does that work practically? What does that look like practically? Well, it tells us here, again, going back to 1 Corinthians 14, 26, when you gather together, come prepared not only to receive a blessing, but come prepared to be a blessing, right? To bless somebody else. 
Now, something you need to understand about the early church gatherings is this. You know, all of us, when we read these passages about these early churches, as we read about the Corinthian church, I'm sure that every one of you has in your mind an image of what those gatherings might have been like. But let me just help you so that you have a more accurate image in your mind of what those early church gatherings were like. Um, First of all, these were small group gatherings of 10 to 20 people max. And there's a reason for this. The, The reason is because in the Roman Empire, Christianity was what was called religia illicitas, which literally just means it was an illicit religion. And that means that it it did not have legal status or legal recognition by the government, which meant that local churches were not entities, right, legally. They had no legal protection, and they had no legal rights. And as an illicit religion, understand, Christianity could not build buildings. They couldn't own properties. And so by necessity, Christianity was forced to function as an underground religion. And this is why for the first 250 years of Christianity, Christian churches met in homes. Now, they didn't meet in homes because they thought that that was inherently better than meeting in large church buildings. They did it purely out of necessity because by law, they couldn't hold properties. They couldn't build properties. They couldn't hold large public gatherings or own buildings. And this is why... Interestingly, the oldest Christian churches in the world, church buildings in the world, are actually found in India and in Central Asia. Because as Christianity spread into those regions, beyond the borders of the Roman Empire, in those places, they actually had more freedom. And they had the freedom to build church buildings and allow for larger groups of people to gather to worship. It wasn't until the Edict of Toleration was issued in the Roman Empire, which was in 314 AD. The Edict of Toleration was issued in the Roman Empire that Christianity became not the official religion of the Roman Empire. It became a legally recognized religion in the Roman Empire. And that allowed Christians, for the first time in that space, to build church buildings and hold larger gatherings. And so then when that happened... They moved away from gathering in homes, and they began building church buildings. But here's the point. Here's why I tell you that. When you picture in your mind what these gatherings might have been like in the the early church, right, in the Corinthian church that Paul's writing to, do not picture in your mind something like what we're having right now. It wasn't like a couple hundred people gathered in a room with chairs all facing the same direction and a stage up in the front. These were small gatherings of 10 to 20 people that took place in homes all over a city, like the city of Corinth. Now, of course, there were many more than just 10 to 20 Christians in the entire city. But in each gathering, it was basically, how many people can we fit in the house? And they would have these gatherings in various homes all over the, Roman, or all over the city of Corinth, much more similar to what we would call community groups. Now, there were times when, like in Ephesus, we read in the book of Acts, chapter 18, that in Ephesus, Paul was there, and he was able to rent out a large meeting hall. And in that meeting hall, he would hold gatherings where he would teach the Bible, and that would have been much more similar to what we do on Sunday mornings. And and by the way, as soon as Christians could have gatherings like this, they did. But I just want you to think about this. If everybody were to 
come up here on stage on a Sunday morning. Like all of you here were to come and, you know, you all prepared with a song or something to share. And you, we all took turns coming up here one at a time, right? Everybody gets a couple minutes on stage to talk and to share. Guys, we would be here all day and like through the night. And there's some of you, like, we couldn't drag you on stage, right? You have so much a fear of standing in front of people and talking in groups. We couldn't drag you up here to save our lives. But what's maybe worse is that there are some others of you, once we got you up here, we'd literally have to drag you off because you wouldn't stop, right? Now, listen, I have been in church services like this, in, especially like in Europe, for example, where, you know, it's kind of this collaborative thing. Everybody brings something. You never know who's going to show up with what. And I'll just say, they go on for a really long time, and the quality is usually pretty hit and miss, right? Like, like what you, you know, it's not always very edifying just because people are doing things, right? Like Jim over here, he wants to play Amazing Grace on his harmonica. And then we've got this other guy, and he wants to share a, a, a word from the Bible, like his opinion on this Bible verse. But then it turns out to be super weird and also heretical. And you have to, like, come up and apologize and, like, correct everything. I'm just saying, like, I've been in these gatherings and they're not always edifying. And I like what Charles Spurgeon said. He tells a story about a friend of his who went to a Bible study like this, and his friend said, oh, it was great. Nobody knew anything, and we all taught each other, right? <laughs> Very nice. You know, there's a reason why it says in Ephesians chapter 4 that God has given some to be teachers in the church, right? There's a reason why Paul instructs Timothy, a young pastor, to train himself in rightly dividing the word and accurately and, and correctly dividing the word, right? That's why Paul here in this chapter, he says, there needs to be order in your church services in order for people to grow. If there's chaos then people aren't going to actually benefit from it. And yet, we also do need to see and receive what it says here in verse 26 of chapter 14, which is this important principle that there need to be opportunities for every member of the church to contribute in some way to the building up of the body of Christ. And that's why, friends, you understand, what we do here on Sunday morning, what we're doing right now, this is good but it's not the only thing we do as a church. This isn't the only way that we make disciples and build up the body of Christ. This is one thing we do. It's not the only thing we do. And this is why we encourage you, and I, I hope you've felt it and heard it because you're going to hear it some more. We beat this drum over and over and over. Join a group and join a team. Join a group and join a team. That's what we want you to do so that you can grow as a Christian and so that you can contribute to the growth of others in the body. So join a community group. You can do it today. Join a men's and women's fellowship. They're starting up right now. In those small group settings, everybody has the opportunity to discuss, to share, to teach, to encourage, to use their gifts to build up others. Those are the settings where you can bring a song. You can bring something to share, right? Our Bible Learning Center classes, they're interactive. Join one of those. Join one of our service teams. There are many areas where you can serve and use your gifts to build up others and further the work of the ministry. And I would encourage you, when you come to church, I encourage you to come with this mindset that says, I'm going there today on a mission. And my mission is not only to be blessed, my mission is to be a blessing. And I'm not going to leave that building today until I've been a blessing to somebody else 
whether they like it or not, right? Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a blessing, right? If you, if you come with that attitude, you know what will happen? You know, you'll, you'll start showing up a few minutes early for church, right? Looking around, God, where, where's there an opportunity for me to serve and be a blessing today? You're going to stay after church for a few minutes as well, right? Because those first five minutes before service, the 15 minutes after, those times when you go to your community group, you're no longer just going to show up. You're going to go there with a purpose, with a mission, right? Those will become rich times of ministry. What if after church, as you're talking to somebody and, and you're, you're hearing from them about what's going on in their life, rather than just saying, okay, bye, right? Like, what if instead you took a minute and you said, you know what? Let's pray together about that thing. Let's pray together right now about that thing. What if you opened up your Bible and said, hey, let me encourage you. This is what God's word has to say, and I hope that it encourages your heart. Friends, if you do that, it will transform your relationships. It will change your life. And you know what? God will hear those prayers. Listen, it is a mistake to think, well, if I'm not up on the platform, I'm not doing ministry. That's just simply not true. Not only are you called to do ministry, every member is called to do ministry. You're called to do it like you can do it and you're called to do it. As the body of Christ, we're called to build each other up in love. That brings us to the second part of this sentence. Rather than being just another consumerist activity, the essence of true worship is surrender to God. So in in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14, Paul has been discussing the value and the use of spiritual gifts. Now here in chapter 14, just to remind you what's been happening, Paul has been talking about the proper use of two spiritual gifts in particular, and those are the gifts of speaking in tongues and the gift of prophecy. So now, continuing in verse 27, Paul picks up this discussion. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Okay, in the previous studies we've done here in 1 Corinthians 14, we've talked about what these gifts are and what their purpose is. But here, Paul is giving instructions about how these gifts should be used in church gatherings practically. He says, look, if someone wants to speak in tongues and contribute to the meeting in that way, he says, someone can. We can have, you know, speaking in tongues in a church gathering, but only if there's someone there to interpret. If there's no one there to interpret, that person should pray that prayer silently to themselves and to God. Because as we saw in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 2, the gift of speaking in tongues is a tool for prayer, right? It's not for speaking to God. It's it's for speaking to God. It's not for speaking messages to other people. And he says, we should put a cap on how many people can speak in tongues at a church service, and they should take turns, right? One at a time. Don't go on top of each other, right? Just take turns one at a time. And now... In the next few verses, starting verse 29, Paul then gives instructions about the proper use of the gift of prophecy. He says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For, if you, can all, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. 
So Paul has already said in this chapter that in public worship gatherings, the gift of prophecy is preferable to the gift of speaking in tongues. And yet, here Paul says, still, even the gift of prophecy should not be allowed to dominate your church gatherings, right? The focus of your gatherings should not be the use of the, the spiritual gifts. It should be the study of the Word of God and worship. And it says in verse 29, prophetic messages also should not just be unquestioningly accepted, right? So anybody who says, well, I have a word and this is from God, we shouldn't just say, okay, we take your word for it and we accept it unquestioningly. No, no, no. He says it needs to be weighed. It needs to be tested. We need to determine, is it really from God? Now, how do you do that? The primary way you do that is by testing these messages against the scriptures, against the word of God. Does it align with what God has already revealed and spoken in the Bible? Paul says here in verse 33, God is a God of order, not a God of confusion. So in other words, God is not going to say one thing in the Bible and then turn around and say something completely different or contradictory through a prophetic message. So if a prophetic message conflicts with what's written in the Bible, then we say, sorry, we have to reject the prophetic message and receive this, what it says here in the Bible instead. Now, furthermore, verse 32 tells us the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. Now, that's an important principle, and it applies to not just this spiritual gift, but all of them. You see, what Paul's telling us is this. When someone uses a spiritual gift, they are fully in control of their mind and their body. It isn't that they go into a trance where they lose control of themselves. It's not like the Holy Spirit takes control of you and you can't stop yourself from speaking out or from doing some, you know, uh, expressive action. No, the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets, which means you can choose not to share something. You can choose to share it later. You can choose to pause and wait for somebody else to finish speaking before you start. That's how spiritual gifts work, he says. And this is important because the essence of worship is not self-indulgence, nor is it self-gratification. The essence of worship is surrender. What do I mean by that? Well, worship means surrendering your pride, and it means surrendering your plans. Surrendering your pride and surrendering your plans. Here's why I say that. Worship is about surrendering your pride, humbling yourself before God, recognizing his greatness and your shortcomings, and admitting your need for his strength, his love, his power, and his grace. Surrender to God, surrendering your pride. The second thing, though, worship has another aspect, and that is surrendering your plans. So, Worship, right? This is a lifestyle we live of surrendering our plans to God where we say, God, wherever you want me to go and whatever you want me to do, I'm yours, heart and soul. So send me, let me be a penny in your pocket that you can spend wherever it pleases you most. Now here in 1 Corinthians 14, we see that up until this point, the Corinthian Christians have had a consumeristic approach to worship. But now God is calling them to surrender themselves to his guidance and his instructions in regard to what they do and how they do it. And it's worth asking yourself, have you surrendered yourself to God? Have you surrendered your pride? Have you surrendered your plans? That's the heart of worship. And it brings us to the final section 
here of this sentence and this passage. Rather than being just another consumerist activity, the essence of true worship is surrender to God, which reorients our hearts to be like Jesus and build up others in love. Verse 34. The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Well, that escalated quickly. Am I right? I was like, wow, we were talking about spiritual gifts, speaking in tongues and prophecy, and then Paul's like, and I don't want women speaking in church, right? How does that even fit into this discussion, right? Because after this, Paul's going to talk some more about the gift of prophecy. So it's like prophecy, prophecy, prophecy. Women can't speak in church. Prophecy, 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 right? Like, like how does this, why does he say this right here? Now, some people have taken these two verses in isolation, right? They've, they've yanked them out of their context in this chapter and just said, look at these two verses. And, you know, that's never a good idea to do, by the way. This is why we read the Bible and why we study it here at this church, verse by verse and chapter by chapter, because context is super important to understanding the meaning of a given passage. If you pull something out of its context, you can kind of make it say something that maybe it wasn't originally intended to say. So what people have done is some people take these two verses out of their context, they look at them in isolation, and they conclude, look, the Bible says that women are never allowed to speak in church under any circumstances. Now, other people have done just the opposite with this, right? What they've done is they've, they've tried to find a way around this because they read this passage and say, oh, I don't like that. And so they say, well, because that doesn't sit right with me, therefore I'm going to say that these two verses must not actually be inspired by God. This is just Paul's opinion, and he got this one wrong. So, you know, feel free to just scratch those verses out in your Bible. You don't need them. They're not really from God. That's just Paul's opinion, not really the words of God. Except the problem with doing that, there are many, but I'll tell you what one of the problems with doing that is. If you look at the very next few verses, verse 36 and verse 37, you know what Paul says? He says, by the way, these things I'm saying, they aren't just my opinion. In other words, he anticipated people coming and saying, well, that's just your opinion, Paul. Paul says, no, no, this is not just my opinion. This is the very word of God to you. So listen, we cannot just dismiss this as that's just Paul's opinion. If we really are honest and we really believe that the Bible was inspired by God, by the Holy Spirit, and delivered faithfully to us by God. We can't just pick and choose the verses we don't like and say, well, they're not inspired. Listen, th there is, though, an issue with this passage that needs to be taken into consideration. So first of all, keep in mind this. We need to consider the context in order to understand what Paul's saying and the difficulty in reading these letters, the letters that Paul writes to these churches, particularly this letter to the Corinthians, is that we're only getting half of the conversation, right? We're, we're not, it's like if you listen to somebody in a room talking on the phone to somebody else and you only hear what one person's saying, you don't hear what the other person's saying on the other end of the phone. Now you can usually put together what that other person must be talking about and what the conversation's going around, but there is some difficulty in that, right? You're having to determine, based on the context of what you hear, what the other person, right, what the other half of the story is. 
And so what we do as we read these letters is we do our best to put together what Paul was responding to. What are the exact situations Paul is speaking into? Now, the context is this. Paul is talking about the spiritual gift of prophecy, and he just explained that if a prophecy is given, it needs to be weighed and tested and considered by those who hear it in the congregation before they can accept it as being from God. Furthermore, here's the other issue. Earlier in this same letter, 1 Corinthians, in chapter 11, verses 5 and 13, Paul gave instructions about how women should conduct themselves when they do two things in church, pray and prophesy. Now, praying and prophesying are both things that require you to speak. So... In chapter 11 there, Paul is actually not discouraging women from praying and prophesying in church. He's encouraging them to do it as long as they're doing it in a way that honors God and honors their husbands for those of them who are married. So in other words, this can't be a blanket prohibition against women ever speaking in any way in church because that would contradict what Paul already said in chapter 11. So if that's the case, then what is this passage saying? Well, one more important factor to keep in mind is this. The words woman and wife, there's only, there's only one word. It's the same word in the Greek language. That one word can be translated based on context, woman or wife. So we have to ask the question, is Paul here speaking to women in general or is he speaking to wives specifically? Now it would seem that he is speaking to wives and here's why. He says in verse 36 that these women have husbands. If you have a husband, that makes you a wife. So Paul is talking to wives. Furthermore, Paul says this in verse 35. He talks about the law, right? The law. But here's the thing. If you look at the law of Moses in Exodus and Leviticus, those books of the Bible, you'll notice there are no rules there given to unmarried women to submit to all men in general. But there are commands about married women honoring their husbands. And this issue of married women honoring their husbands in church gatherings is an issue that Paul already addressed in 1 Corinthians 11, which tells us that this was an issue in that congregation that needed to be addressed. So, all these things considered, and I understand this is a long explanation, but it's important because this verse causes a lot of confusion. All these things considered, it seems that what Paul is addressing is a situation in which some wives in this church were in the habit of doing this. Like when their husbands would share a word of prophecy, during that time when the prophetic message was being weighed and considered and tested, these wives were in the habit of challenging their husbands publicly in the meeting in front of others. Right, so the husband would share a word of prophecy and say, you know, here, here's a word that God gave me. And as it's being considered by those in the congregation, the wife would say, oh, come on. That wasn't really from God. You made that up. I know you did. Or maybe she wouldn't do that. Maybe she would just say, uh, you know, she would start having like a private conversation with her husband about what he had just said. And it was just inappropriate for the setting. It was distracting. In some cases, though, dishonoring to the husbands. And Paul is saying, wives, if your husband shares a prophetic word in the church gathering and you have questions about it, or maybe you even have doubts about it, don't act shamefully by calling him out in public like that. Show him honor and respect by taking that issue and talking about it at home between the two of you afterwards. 
Now, let me say this. In 1 Timothy chapters 2 and 3, the Bible does have more to say about the roles and offices of leadership in the church and who is to hold those offices. But the issue here in 1 Corinthians 14 seems to be about judging of prophecies and the role of wives in doing so when it comes to their husband's prophecies. And, and that would be consistent, by the way. This interpretation is consistent with what Paul has been saying about showing honor in the church and, and conducting ourselves in a way that is focused on building up others in love. So Paul concludes this discussion of spiritual gifts in verses 39 and 40 where he says, So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. So here in 1 Corinthians 14, we see a vision for worship that is reorienting. On the one hand, it reorients us away from a consumeristic mentality about church and worship. It shows us that we are called to be members of a body, and each of us has a role to play to the body, a way to contribute, to build up the body in love. It shows us that the essence of worship isn't just passively receiving, but actively surrendering ourselves and availing ourselves to God for His purposes to do His work. Another way, though, that this vision of worship is reorienting is this. As you do this, as you avail yourself to God, as you begin to focus and seek out ways that you can be a blessing and how you can serve others, it will reorient your heart more and more towards Jesus. As you move away from being a consumer and having that consumer mentality and you begin to step out and serve and bless, you also become more and more aware of your shortcomings and your needs. You become more and more aware of how much you need God's help and you are so dependent on his guidance. And it also fills you with a greater appreciation of what God has done for you through Jesus. The message of the gospel, friends, is that Jesus laid his life down for you. Jesus, the ultimate servant, he came to live the life that you ought to have lived but failed to, a life of perfect obedience to God. And he came to die the death that you should have died in your place, the death of judgment for your sins. And he did those things, not for his own sake, but he did them for you because he loves you. He rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven so that through him, you too can have life after death and eternity in heaven. And he did all of this for you. And the way to receive this gift is by faith, by trusting in and relying on, by clinging to Jesus and what he did for you in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. And once you have this hope, once you have put your faith and trust in Jesus, then he calls you to follow him on this path of life-giving love and service, which leads people to him and builds them up in him. Friends, that is a life worth living. That is a life that has purpose and meaning and value. So let's do it. Rather than just being another consumerist activity, the essence of true worship is surrender to God, which reorients our hearts to be like Jesus and build up others in love. Would you please bow your heads and pray with me? You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. 
Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.